Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Cecilia Mas. Today on the program, we have a very special episode. We're going to be talking about memory of Ottoman Armenian history uh, through both material and musical cultural artifacts. And our guest on the podcast today, Sato Mughalian, is someone who's going to be able to speak to this uh, subject from a variety of angles. Uh, she's a professional flutist in the New York City area, artistic director of the Perspectives Ensemble, uh, and in addition to her musical career, she's also a historical researcher of sorts, researching the life of her grandfather and his art, uh, sort of retracing his footsteps, the story of a man named David Ohanesian. So Sato, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I'm an avid listener. I've learned a tremendous amount listening to your episodes, and I thank you for this opportunity. And, and we thank you for coming on. I know that most of our guests are professional historians, and for someone who's maybe operating in, in the arts, it's not intuitive to come on a history podcast like this. Uh, but uh, I assure you that uh, you know the stories we're going to be hearing today are going to fit in very nicely with what we've been talking about in the podcast and the ongoing historical discussion that's taking place there. Uh, and I also want to thank you for providing the space to record this uh, episode. Uh, our listeners can't see it, but we'll have a picture up on the website so they can at least get an idea. We're in a, an apartment in Washington Heights that is filled with these beautiful ceramics, uh, tiles uh, from, I guess, as we're going to talk about from the Ottoman Empire, but also from uh, Jerusalem. And these tiles are, in fact, the art of your grandfather. Yes, they are. I've collected them over a period of time. I had inherited very few of them because my family was involved in a number of political relocations, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, and they were not able to keep very many pieces of ceramics in their travels around the Middle East, but they did keep archives. And especially two years ago, I was given a very important archive of documents relating to my grandfather's work, primarily in Jerusalem, but also in Kutahia. Right. And so uh, the first part of our discussion today will actually be a quick breeze through retracing uh, that story, which you're writing as a, as a book as we speak, right? You're preparing a, as, a, as a monograph. Yes, I'm writing his biography now. Well, we look forward to reading that. And uh, our listeners might recognize aspects of this story from a post that you published in Stambulin, which actually was translated into Turkish, published by Toplum Saltari, a very good uh, journal, and it's available for our uh, Turkish listeners. They can find the bibliographical wef- references on the website. Right. For the record, it's in the f- um, January 2016 issue. Yes. And I really recommend people uh, check that out. Beautiful pictures uh, in that publication. Uh, so let's get right into the, the discussion of the, the history of, of your grandfather and his art. Tell us about uh, David Ohanesian and how he begins this journey from, as you say in your article, from Kutahia to Quds or Jerusalem. Well, it goes back a little further than that. He was actually born in an isolated mountain village in western Anatolia mm-hmm. called Muradja, which was close to Eskashir. And um, I did manage to actually locate and visit the village last year where there are currently 14 elderly descendants of the Balkan Muslims who were moved there in population transfer in Mm. 1915. His family had lived in this village for about 400 years, but they had sent people out to practice various professions, including ceramic workers, Mm -hmm. 
who um, traveled to Kutahia, which was, as you know, a regional center for ceramics, particularly for Armenian ceramic mm -hmm. artists. Mm -hmm. And he moved there when he was 17 or 18 years old and apprenticed himself. And that's where he got his start in ceramics. It's the tradition there goes back probably to prehistoric times yeah. when uh, ceramic artists worked with red clay. Mm -hmm. And then in the early 16th century, um, they began working in a way that's more like what we think of as the Isnik style with the white right. background mm -hmm. and the same similar color palette um, designs that were derived from imperial court mm -hmm. wares. And at the same time, because there were so many Armenians and because of the location of Kutahia in Anatolia, you know, historically in the mm -hmm. middle of trade routes, there were a lot of other design influences mm -hmm. from Persia, from China, from lots of other places, ceramic centers on the Silk Road and trade routes. Right. And, you, and our listeners will see on our website, adamhistorypodcast.com, the pictures of these tiles. These are like sort of, if you visit Istanbul and you see the motifs like evoking the Ottoman past, these are the tiles, right? These Iznik tiles, for example, the tiles that are uh, associated with the, the Ottoman dynasty and its uh, material heritage. These are the type of ceramics that he's producing. Yes, he was producing because at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, um, after a long sort of fallow period in Kutahia's history, the tradition didn't end entirely, but mm -hmm. it was um, functioning at a much slower pace than it had in previous centuries. Um, there was an enormous demand for the repair of historical right. tiled historical monuments uh, all over yeah. the Ottoman Empire and beyond, actually. Kutahya and Iznik are not that far apart from each other, a little over 100 miles, and they are located in a geologically very complex area. I mean, anyone who's been to Turkey, northwest part of Turkey, is familiar right. with the, you know, the mountains that spring out of nowhere and the rock formations and um, the, the microclimates. You can drive a few miles and go from a temperate climate into a desert climate. And if we accept tectonic theory that um, right. that part of the world is where these various continental fragments or plates met um, and where life that was at one time under sea is pushed up into the air, you know, leaving fossil right. remnants behind in mountains, you can see um, that there are a lot of materials. There are a lot of materials that, that transformed over time from organic to inorganic. And, of course, it's very, very rich in clay and other minerals, which naturally gave rise to these complex art forms. Right, but also like demographics of the entire region was as diverse. So um, can you also tell us a little bit about the profession? Because what I remember from your article is also the entire um, diversity within the tiles is also the product of this demographic um, diversity in the region. Yes, we don't know as much about the demography of, of the workers in Iznik, but we do know about the ones in Kutahia right. because we have mm -hmm. um, court records and we have bargaining agreements and we have firmans mm -hmm. and yes. you know, various kinds of records from the 18th century, which lists names. We actually have tax records, some tax records from earlier than that. But um, so we do know that historically 
the majority of ceramic workers in Kutahia were Armenian, although there were certainly some Greek and some Turkish and right. some others, but primarily Armenian. Right. At the end of the 19th century, we had basically two major ateliers in Kutahia. I mean, during the era of Suleiman and afterward, mm-hmm. there was much more demand there were hundreds of kilns operating, and the number by the end of the 18th century had dropped to about 100. And then over the course of the 19th century, there were a few small ateliers. We have you know, tax records of potters. They were all Armenian. And we had also, in people's homes, small kilns. Right. So, I mean, one of the interesting things about Kutahia is that you have the, the court-style um, ceramic work, but you also have what you could think of as a, a folk, almost a folk style ceramic work where you have um, figurative representations, mm-hmm. you have a totally different palette than they had with, you know, bright greens and yellows, which is a color that you don't really see in Iznik where Are these, are these for uh, like everyday, everyday use of the local population or are they for the market? Did, were you able to track down anything? Also, there is like a carpet tradition in the region, like yes. in Kutahya and Ushak, and I believe these material cultures are actually speaking to each other. Yes, um, I mean, that's very much the case. And you also have population transfers that happened over right. time. I mean, particularly with artists coming from um, the Persian regions who brought mm-hmm. like a different set of design elements with mm-hmm. them, which transfused, you know, into the local arts. The ceramic where well, there were lots of different uses for it. Of course, there was um, the coffee craze in Anatolia, and Kutahia did a wonderful job of, of providing you That's know true. tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of these beautiful small coffee cups, which were sent all over the trade routes. Right. You had religious um, votive pieces that were made, um, many with inscriptions, many that were sent to Jerusalem, along with pilgrims. And you had lots of things that were made just as domestic wear. I mean, um, from the very, very elaborate to the very simple. Yeah, and I mean, even today in Turkey, like the typical Turkish coffee cup that you would find, it kind of bears this style that is a product of uh, the ceramics of the Kutahia region. It's kind of spread and become a national thing today. Also, when you turn it, you'll see Kutahia porcelain written underneath. So (laughs) So it has it's a living history. tradition, if yeah, I may say. That's right. The yeah. tradition um, remained through the 20th century into the oh, 21st. Absolutely. Well, tell us about David Ohanesian and how he fits into this tradition during the late Ottoman period. So David Ohanesian was partly descended from faience makers himself. And when he was, as we said, 17 or 18 years old, he moved to the city, apprenticed himself. Um, he had worked as an assistant to an egg merchant prior to that. And he did speak fluent French. He went to the French Augustinian school Mm -hmm. in Eskashir. He had to quit when he was 14 years old. When his father died, he needed to help support the family. But he had achieved fluency in French, which, as you know, is the language of commerce, the language, you know, which Ottoman citizens spoke to foreign citizens. And he may have been the only one... um, there who had the degree of fluency that he had. Mm-hmm. So it, it ended up being a tremendous advantage for him. He was ambitious. He was sociable. He was mathematically gifted. And so when he was 23 years old, he was able to 
found his own atelier mm. there. So by 1907, there were these three workshops functioning. Um, two were Armenian. There was the Ohanessian one, which came to be called the Société Ottoman de Fayence. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one of the Minassian brothers who had learned the art from their own father, who was a late 19th century master. And then a third, which was the workshop of Mehmet Emin. Mm-hmm. And he was the senior of this group of four people, and he was the only Muslim. Um, he received, I mean, as the sort of nationalist architectural movement developed. He was the one who received the bulk of the contracts. And because the work grew very quickly over a very short period of time, right. everyone was busy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a, a, a sense of the scale of um, Ohanesian's uh, atelier at the, you know, sort of this post-1907 uh, period? Well, I don't know exactly how many people he had working for him, but we know that there were approximately 150 workers between the three workshops at the time. I think that the building that sort of um, notched up the level of activity was actually the government house in Kutahia, which um, started construction in 1907. Um, as you know, the governors were in general um, centrally appointed and the mutasarifs uh-huh. were generally centrally appointed. And usually when you look at the records, people didn't serve very long in any one place. They, they moved around. And Ahmed Fouad Pasha was an exception because he was um, put in place in 1893, evidently had fairly close ties to the Hamidian government and actually remained in place until mm-hmm. 1908. So that's an extraordinarily long run. He was also an architect, and he was very, very interested in revitalizing Kutahia, which had, like many other places in the late 19th century, had a waning economy. He started a program of mosque restorations in the 1890s and brought Mehmed Emin into this, who began designing increasingly complex tiles for calligraphic inscriptions, for repairs... And over time, Emin and the Minasans were, you know, working very hard to kind of figure out once again how to produce the the kind of luminous tiles of the 16th century. Um, I'm not convinced that they thought of themselves as imitators. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's my impression that they thought of themselves as being on a continuum that extended back in history and that they were trying to recreate the art of their own forefathers. Mm. So you can see um, in the government house of Kutahia, which the exterior tiling has all been replaced, but the interior tiling of the masjid there is still the original work. Mm. And so it it gives us kind of a, a picture of the state of progress in the art in 1907, just as things were really beginning to revive. Following that they did, the artists did manage to find that kind of luminosity. Um, But you can see that in 1907, in spite of a very, very beautiful construction, they're still working out the technical aspects of the art. Interesting. So it's kind of this period of revival in the material culture of Kutahia, one that's very local, but one that involves both the local 
uh, I guess, Muslim artisans and Armenian artisans as well. You know, we have a lot of cultural revival going on in Anatolia mm-hmm. during that time. We might talk about that later in the podcast, but a lot of that is ha- happening along sort of ethno-religious lines, right? Greek revival, Armenian revival, et cetera, et cetera. This is a little bit different type of story. One of the largest commissions that David Onhestin had in his Kutahia years came from Mark Sykes. The Mark Sykes from yes. Sykes Picot. <laughs> exactly. Amongst other things. Uh, amongst other things. I mean, Sykes had, from the age of 11, traveled extensively in Anatolia and was enamored of, you know, the, his romantic idea of the East, etc. His family's manor, Sledmere, burned nearly to the ground in 1911. And as he rebuilt, he came up with the idea of of making a Turkish room. And as you know, of course, Lord Leighton, several decades earlier, had had made his famous Arab room in his house in London. This was, was a bit of a thing. Wait, it was a bit of a Leisure thing. Leisure and, yeah. and all of this were associated with the quote-unquote Orient. And- yeah, exactly. Um, Leighton had a large collection of Damascus, primarily Damascus tiles, and he incorporated them into a new design Sykes did something a little different. Sykes went to Kutahia, met David Ohanesian, um, decided that he could somehow work with him, even though they were both extraordinarily demanding and perhaps difficult people. Mm-hmm. And Ohanesian and Sykes and Sykes' architect um, came up with a design for a room, that a large room, and actually one that your listeners can visit in Sledmere Manor, which has visiting hours. It's a gorgeous day trip. It's an organic room using various 16th century designs, but completely new, although made in a 16th century manner. Some people describe it as um, a copy of an apartment from, you know, one of the Queen Mother's apartments from the Yandi Jami mosque it's really not like that because if you look at the the sultan valide mosque the the tiles are from a later period the palette is different um the palette of the turkish room as it's mm-hmm. called in sledmere is is very fresh and uh it's quite spectacular at any rate this commission took two years and so from 1911 to 1913 when it was completed and sykes and were in touch all that time sykes came to Kutahia twice during that period, and the room was a spectacular success. Lots of Sykes's friends in Europe saw this room after it was put together in early 1914. And this will connect us to a later part of Ohanesian's story. Right, and we can see here how, the, through David Ohanesian and his peers, the Kutahia tiles are even, um, the, the Kutahia ceramics are even making their mark sort of beyond uh, the Ottoman realm, even beyond the Ottoman Mediterranean all the way, you know, sort of in these European households. Exactly. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Sechel Yilmaz here talking with Sato Muralian about um, the life of her grandfather and his art. We've just been hearing about uh, the sort of the revival of the tile uh, and ceramic production uh, in Kutahia 
uh, during the sort of last decade of the Ottoman period before the First World War and how your grandfather, David Ohanisyan, was an integral part of this, the, the handicrafts that were um, rising in Kutahia during that time. I'd like to say that they probably would not have approved of the use of the word handicrafts. I, I, um, one of the things I'm learning in the course of this research is how extremely labor-intensive it was to produce these tile works. I mean, you look at them, both the works from Kutahia that are done in the court style and, of course, the Iznik masterpieces of the 16th century, and they look so perfect. It's hard to imagine all the steps that are involved mm. in producing I mean, someone had to get the clay, dig the clay out. And, of course, later in the Ottoman period, that involved getting a permit from the Ministry of Forests, Mines, and Agriculture. Sure. I know Um, that ministry. (laughs) Some group of of boys would have to bring the clay back and mix it with water and put it through sieves, you know, to filter out Mm -hmm. the impurities. They would have to let it sit. I mean... There, there were jobs as specific as, you know, finding the right kinds of wood to fire in the kiln, chopping it to the right size. Even along those lines, there was someone whose job it was to simply watch the kiln because the way they monitored temperature was right. by looking at the color of the flame. So every, every bit, you know, finding the minerals, grinding the minerals, mixing the right proportions um, was actually very specific. I mean... You can look at it and say, oh, it's completely unscientific, but in a way it was also very mathematical. And in the notes that I have, you know, there, there are all kinds of um, right. information about like exactly which proportion of this or, you know, this kind of cowl and clay from this stream bed worked better than that one or this one was more plastic, mm-hmm. you know. It was actually very, very labor intensive and it involves the cooperation of a lot of people. Right. We don't want to have this image of, you know, the master in the workshop with the kiln just kind of generating all of this, these ceramics and kind of just, no, there's a much uh, more complex network of labor, of resources. Uh, that's an extremely uh, uh, complicated production process, but also deeply embedded yes. uh, in the local geography, in the, in the local political economy as well, as we've been talking about. Uh, so let's at this point, kind of shift our discussion a little bit to talk about uh, what happens to David Ohanisian um, during the war period. He, he has a, a unique story in some regards, but in some ways very typical, the story of many Ottoman Armenians, more than a million Ottoman Armenians, the story of the Armenian genocide yes. uh, and, and how it took place. Um, but in, in our conventional historiography of the Armenian genocide, Kutahia generally holds a a unique place in that story itself as a, as a district uh, where local political dynamics and reactions to the deportation orders took specific form. Could you elaborate on that a little? Sure, yes. And, and like many stories in history, it's more complex than we right. actually know. So during the uh, period in question, um, the governor, his name was Faik Ali Bey, who is ethnically Kurdish. He actually had... Uh, two separate periods in which he was governor of Kutahia. Um, and his brother was uh, Suleiman Nazif, who was a member of the CUP. So Faikali Bey very early on determined that he didn't want to have anything to do with the deportation practices. And in fact, he, um, he communicated to the Armenians in Kutahia that 
if they had any relatives coming through uh, the Aliunt train station on their way east, that if they were willing to claim them as relatives and take responsibility, that they could be pulled off the deportation caravans. And in fact, um, my own grandfather claimed 45 or 50 deportees mm. as his immediate relatives and took them in. Um, Fike <laughs> saw that the volume of people coming into the city was large, and he actually arranged for um, some of them to be dispersed into surrounding villages in mm-hmm. the Kaza and you know where they could do agricultural work and be less noticeable. However, he was sent to um, Gallipoli in March mm-hmm. of 1916. He actually refused that commission and ended up uh, taking a bureaucratic position, but um, contrary to what a lot of people think, that you know he protected the Armenians throughout the whole war mm-hmm. period, yeah. um, his tenure was shorter than is generally understood. And in that period, early 1916, my grandfather... His house was raided, and they found a cache of letters in the Armenian language, the, mm-hmm. the gendarmes, and he was arrested and summarily sentenced to death. He managed to escape this. A, a friend of his, a Turkish bureaucrat, um, arranged his release, but he did end up being deported. Mm. And it's a complicated story, which we'll have to well, wait for yeah. another opportunity. We'll have to look forward to reading, <laughs> reading the book about the full story. But you do have this kind of context where, yes, I mean, we can't portray it as a simple story of all oh, the Armenians of Kutahi were protected because of this one governor. I mean, in the end, as 1916 wears on, as many have already been deported all the way to Aleppo and then beyond into the Syrian desert, there are still later phases, phases of deportation out of Anatolia. Some of these places where the first phase kind of uh, didn't take. Adana region is another region where the local mm-hmm. governor was kind of unresponsive. You know, the well-connected Armenian community, they were able to, some of them were able to maneuver. But eventually, as the CUP in February um, starts to crack down on these um, slippages, they become increasingly scarce. And those who maybe had avoided the first bit of that a stage eventually are deported People like your grandfather right. from Kutahia. And so my grandfather was one of the first deportees. I mean, his family was uh, one of the first families to be deported from Kutahia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were sent to Derzor, where they spent some months. Uh, he became very ill with typhus. They ran out of food. They ran out of money. After a period of time, the Ohanesians arrived in Aleppo and... It was my grandmother who kept them alive in the beginning. She baked pita bread, which my grandfather sold in the street markets early in the morning until he was strong enough to work. Once he'd recovered to a degree, he was able to get work for the railway, uh, which was in the middle of a war period building boom. And during this time, he re-encountered Mark Sykes, who was on his last foreign office mission. He had a last three-month mission um, during which time he went to Port Said, visited Mm -hmm. the Armenian refugees there, went to Jerusalem, and spent a week staying with then-military governor Ronald Storrs, the newly installed British governor in Jerusalem. They had been friends prior to the war, and they shared a lot of artistic interests. Um, most likely at that time, Sykes learned that stores, along with some of the other military officials, 
were very concerned about the disrepair of the Dome of the Rock and mm-hmm. the other religious monuments in Jerusalem, and were trying to figure out a plan to restore the dome. Um, they had brought Ernest Richmond, a consulting architect, to examine the Dome of the Rock and report on its condition. And they had brought Charles Ashby, who was um, a disciple of William Morris and an urban planner, artist, architect, to determine or to help come up with a, a plan of how to restore Jerusalem. So Sykes was there as these things were in the air. And from Jerusalem, he proceeded to Aleppo, where... One of his tasks was to interview the many, many Armenian refugees who were there, you know, who came to him in, in, in states of desperation, trying to figure out how they could reach their relatives, et cetera. And during this time, um, he reencountered my grandfather and told wow. him that Storrs was looking for a ceramist to travel to Jerusalem to take on the work of restoring the Dome of the Rock which had been covered with ceramic tiles in the 16th century mm. under Suleiman's reign. Right. Kind of weird serendipity there. And so he runs into Mark Sykes and it's and suddenly it's off to Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so many things that happen in history are just, you know, a confluence of events or, yeah. you know, coincidences between people and this is yet another of them. Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Sechel Yilmaz here with Sato Mughalian talking about the life of her grandfather, David Ohanisian, and his art. I do want to remind our listeners that they can visit ottomanhistorypodcast.com for the bibliography for this podcast and to learn more about how they can read about both the story of David Ohanisian, uh, but also the you know historical context of, of, of his art and, his, and the life and times he lived in. Um, Sato can you um, tell us a little bit um, about David Ohanesian's life in Jerusalem and and what happened afterwards? Absolutely. Jerusalem was a place where actually tens of thousands of Armenians were flocking in this period. Mm-hmm. I mean, Armenian refugees, including my grandparents and their three young children, went there. Um, there was the convent and Cathedral of St. James uh, in the Armenian Quarter, where they all, that was the arrival point. And once he was there, you know, he was very quickly put in touch with all the various people who were involved in trying to make plans for the restoration of the Dome of the Rock. It's a complicated, it was a complicated question because, of course, this is, you know, the oldest standing um, Islamic uh, work of architecture. It's deeply symbolic. And so here you had these, you know, Christian governors, British governors, trying to um, get this project going, and they bring a Christian Armenian to do the restoration work. And there was already, you know, tremendous uh, amount of unease, um, between the various populations there with the arrival of the British and the establishment of the mandate, which came a little bit later, actually. 
There was a kiln discovered on the Haram Asharif uh, that dated to the 19th century, and everyone thought that it would be a good idea to use this kiln, which had been used over the course of the 19th century to make you know, tiles for the repair of the Dome of the Rock. Since the 16th century, the Dome of the Rock, like other externally tiled monuments, had to have periodic repairs, and Jerusalem had severe weather, occasional earthquakes, occasional snowstorms, and tiles were falling off or breaking. Um, And people would come, and they would make tiles. They would bring materials. They would make tiles, patch it up, (laughs) and then leave. In part, this was because Palestine didn't have the raw materials that were needed um, for the Ottoman-style production of tiles. So people were always being imported along with the materials, and there was no established resident tradition of faience making in this style. So there's Ohanesian. He's at a different altitude. He's in a different geological environment. Um, absolutely everything is different. Right. Um, but this is the, this is the encounter of his life. This is yeah. the opportunity of his life, you know, to, find a way to continue his art in spite of these very different circumstances. And evidently the first round of firing was a failure. Um, People give different reasons for that. It may have been that they didn't have the same kind of wood, Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly he didn't have a core of people who were used to this division of labor as they had it in Kutahia. So he was determined to find a way to make this work. And he asked for permission to travel back to Katahia to bring out workers. He went back and found a very desolate environment um, there in Katahia. There were few people left. I mm. mean, by now, most of the Armenians had been deported. Right. Um, one of the Manassian brothers had been deported into the interior of Anatolia, and he and his other brother, um, it was Garbed and Harutun, ended up traveling to Athens where they reestablished a business. Um, Mehmet Emin had stopped making tiles altogether. I mean, they just didn't have the workforce anymore. And certainly, you know, um, all transportation was um, dedicated to the war effort and people had been conscripted either for the army or they had been deported. So it was a, it was a pretty dismal situation. Um, Owen Hessian brought eight or 10 people back to Jerusalem and then he had a huge number of people in Jerusalem that he was able to train from the ranks of the many, many orphans. So the Near East Relief Foundation mm-hmm. placed a number of orphans with him and the pro-Jerusalem society, which had been established to kind of oversee um, and help organize and fundraise for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, uh, supported this financially, a school of ceramics there. And... He trained people very quickly and eventually determined that the 19th century kiln was not going to do the trick. Governor Storrs found him a new place on the Via Dolorosa. Mm -hmm. He built a kiln, set up a workshop, and very quickly they were making pottery. However, they did not end up doing um, a full restoration of the Dome Mm. of the Rock. They contributed some tiles, but by this time um, they had the, the Supreme Muslim 
Council was formed at the end of 1921, and they hired Kemal to come from Constantinople to supervise the buildings on the Haram Ashrif. And when he came, he, he knew Ohanesian, of course, because they had worked together many times in the Kutahia years. But given everything that had happened in the war, he um, and, and his very strong nationalism, he determined that the tiles should only be made by Turkish Muslim ceramists. So hmm. Ohanesian, um, in spite of the fact that Kemalatin acknowledged um, his artistry and his success making ceramics and called him, you know, one of the two best ceramics makers in the world, um, he didn't end up finishing the commission and turned instead to other work. Well, it's a very interesting moment uh, in the history of the Middle East. You have the British take over Palestine and are about to make this grand display uh, of their imperial um, presence by restoring the Dome of the Rock, much as the Ottomans had done when they took over um, the region from the Mamluks during the 16th century. You can hear about that in our podcast with Hagnar Wattenpah. Um, but of course, then you have this um, sort of the identity politics surrounding uh, the restoration and sort of I guess, a consensus that uh, the Dome of the Rock should be something that's supervised uh, by Muslim authorities. Uh, and so uh, the British preside over this, but on the other hand, they don't want to, uh, that's sort of a, a red line for them, sort of interfering uh, in these, what are being described, I guess, as Islamic institutions. Yes, it's true. I mean, um, there was the religious question, and there was the commercial question as well, because it was to be an enormous commission um, it was thousands and thousands of tiles that were required, and the Grand Mufti estimated, and I mean, together with uh, Richmond, estimated that the cost would be 80,000 pounds to restore. Mm-hmm. So given the kind of dismal condition, um, economic conditions in Kutahia, uh, Kemalatin wanted to push the work in that direction, even though there were very few people mm. left working there. But I think it's understandable that he was trying to save the now Turkish mm. tile trade. I mean, what had been the sure. Ottoman tile trade and was now going to be the Turkish tile trade. Right, a lot of these considerations are economic after all. So the restoration of the Dome of the Rock brings David Ohanesian to Jerusalem. In the end, it doesn't really become uh, the work opportunity that it was supposed to be when he came, but he, in the meantime, has set up uh, this workshop uh, in Via Dolorosa, you said. Yes, and it was called actually the Dome of the Rock Tiles, ah. and it retained that name <laughs> until 1948, you know, his last year in Palestine. Yeah, and so tell us about his business there very briefly. What did they produce? Where did his tiles end up? So they, they produced lots of pottery for export. I mean, it became um, very much associated with the city, and as the city kind of revived after the war and tourists and pilgrims came back, you know, people could buy a piece of this kind of ancient looking pottery mm-hmm. made with the earth of the Holy Land. And, you know, it, it, it became a, a really entrenched institution. Um, additionally, he did um, tile revetments. He did uh, a number of installations. He started working with um, some architects, primarily Spiro Huri, who, um, commissioned him to do facade tiles for a number of new homes that were Mm -hmm. being built outside the old city. And because in the rebuilding, Governor Storrs had determined that um, stucco 
and corrugated tin should not be used and that eventually, you know, it became a law that you had to side new construction with Jerusalem stone. These beautiful blue-green Armenian tiles really stood out in the city's landscape. And they became, mm-hmm. you know, a very characteristic part of the visual fabric of, of Jerusalem. And there are quite a lot of them, um, quite a lot of these installations uh, still standing. And then the other uh, ceramic artists, uh, Balian and Karakashian, uh, eventually um, opened their own joint studio outside of the old city. They made lots of tile work. Their descendants continue the work today. And um, other Armenian families have also opened um, tile workshops. But I think that my grandparents had been traumatized by their experience during the deportations. And one by one in the 40s, um, the children left. And then finally in 1948, during the war, my grandparents left. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. They went to Damascus, then to Egypt, to Cairo for several years, and then Beirut, where my grandfather was in the process of setting up a ceramics department in the art department of the American University of Beirut. And he had a stroke and died in 1953. Wow, that's an incredible journey, both in sort of at the beginning of his career, uh, the peak of his career, but then also at the end of his career to to go through uh, another uh, sort of exile, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. I think the other ceramic artists and their descendants who were there had not, th- those particular people, although other members of their family, families had been deported, but... Um, they themselves had not been deported, although they certainly watched the destruction mm. of the Armenian population of Kutahia, you know, in the years that they were there until, you know, mid-1919 when they came to Jerusalem. Um, they were able to endure, and um, they've done a fantastic thing of, of keeping this art alive, mm. this Jerusalem yeah. art alive. and. The artists everywhere. I mean, you know, if you somehow neglect to buy Jerusalem pottery while you're in Jerusalem, you can pick up a piece at the Tel Aviv airport on your way out. Yeah. It's, and it's kind of become the symbol, just as the Kutahia uh, pottery in Turkey has become that symbol. And, and here we have a, the story of a, an agent of that transmission bodily sort of bringing um, uh, that technology and that art form along with him at the various phases of his own journey. Yes, and with a great deal of his characteristic um, determination, I mean, the British had hired a geological advisor mm-hmm. um, in that period at uh, when they began the civic administration the, in the beginning of the mandate period. I think they were hoping to find oil or other really valuable uh, commodities in Palestine, you know, to help fund all the rebuilding that was going on. And um, and so Ohanesian was able to commission a mineral survey of Palestine. And so we ha- actually have a record of all the minerals that he had used in oh. Kutahia because mm. he made this specific request to the geological advisor, who then over a period of years did actually explore various areas in Palestine, one of the things they discovered was that Palestine had no kaolin. And kaolin is the particular kind of clay that gives, you know, Iznik and Kutahia ceramics the white, the brilliant white Um, background. So it's a very, very important uh, visual component, visual ingredient. 
And what ended up happening was that the art in Jerusalem changed. I mean, they did end up importing kaolin eventually from um, Turkey to fulfill a number of, you know, huge commissions Mm -hmm. in the 1930s. But the art itself um, changed. They experimented with different color backgrounds. And it was hard because, you know, he had a certain visual standard of um, color saturation and I think that's one of the things that distinguishes his ceramic works from others of the period was mm. the degree of color saturation. And there was a long process of experimentation that yeah. happened once they arrived in Palestine to achieve that. And our listeners can check out the website and, and see pictures of the the ceramics and kind of actually see that difference, how the, the, the Jerusalem ceramics do have a little bit less white in them, a lot less white in them. And you know, there's a reason for that. that these stylistic considerations are also um, logistical c- considerations uh, in the art form. Well, Sato, this has been a, a great little glimpse into this story that's unfolding from your research. I know you did archival research in different countries and sort of traveled a lot of the phases uh, of your grandfather's journey in trying to reconstruct this story. And I'm sure our listeners are very much looking forward to the book you have underway. Uh, I can imagine all sorts of purposes for this book once it's out in terms of dramatization and whatnot. But, you know, we'll leave that for another time and and tell our listeners to um, anticipate uh, the forthcoming work of uh, Sato Mughalian on the story of her grandfather, David Ohanassian, and his art. Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Sechil Yilmaz here with Sato Mughalian. For those of you who've stayed with us thus far, you're getting a little bonus uh, interview uh, on Ottoman History Podcast because as we foreshadowed at the beginning of our episode, Sato is not just researching uh, and indeed producing a very uh, intricate and detailed uh, historical research that really gives a fascinating window onto the subjective and individual experience uh, of the Armenian genocide and and sort of the history uh, and the post-history of Ottoman Armenians. Uh, But she's also an accomplished flutist. Sato's been in over 20 uh, chamber music uh, recordings. Those are CDs of her own, as well as appearing in various other uh, recordings and performances uh, throughout a career uh, as a flutist. And they've had the great good fortune to perform in... North and South America, Europe, Asia, and North Africa. So I feel very fortunate to have uh, had the chance to see a lot of the world. Yeah, through this uh, wonderful art. And while we won't force you to uh, perform live for us uh, <laughs> here on the podcast, although I'm very tempted to ask you to do so, we have done that in the past to our friend Ozan Aksoy, uh, an ethnomusicologist and musician in his own right. Uh, we will listen to a couple recordings that you've been a part of, um, recordings that are uh, of our Ar- Armenian music of various varieties, and talk a little bit about the stories uh, behind these recordings and, and what they 
tell us about the past and its uh, interaction with our present memory. And so I'll alert our listeners to check out ottomanhistorypodcast.com to get the track list. Uh, a couple of the recordings we're going to be hearing are actually uh, Sato's own recordings that are not available anywhere else, uh, but in her own private collection. So we're very uh, excited to have access to those today. So Sato, let's start out with one of those recordings okay. um, from one of your live performances. Uh, this is re- a recording of uh, a composition of uh, the uh, bard, uh, the early modern bard, uh, Sayat Nova. Would you yes. mind introducing the figure of Sayat Nova for our listeners? Maybe the Ottoman audience isn't as familiar with this sure. figure. Sure. Well, he's certainly a figure that the Ottoman audience would love to know better, I think. Um, he was an Ashur, a poet. And we have some of his melodic settings, and some we don't, but we have... Uh, a great deal of his poetry. He was yeah. an 18th century um, Ashur, and he spent a good amount of time in the court of the king of Georgia. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes him so um, relatable to the Ottoman audience is that he wrote and in, he incorporated words from so many different languages, even into a single work of poetry. You might yeah. find Armenian, Georgian, Persian, Turkish, yep. you know, you, you'll find these words. Whatever word was most expressive to him is the word that he, he chose. So I think he's, in a way, the ultimate Ottoman. Although, right. Well, I mean, <laughs> yes, it's similar to the Ottoman case. He's this kind of, he's the whole Caucasus all in one. Exactly. He's got for Azeris, for Armenians, and for Georgians uh, that can't agree on a lot of aspects <laughs> of their history. I mean, this is a person who kind of shows how intertwined yeah. uh, those poetic uh, traditions really are. Yes, and uh, very romantic, very spiritual, um, very metaphysical, metaphorical writer. And um, the work that we're going to hear is uh, perhaps the one of his best-known songs called Kamancha. And Kamancha is also the name of a, a regional instrument that many of your listeners will know. Kamanche for our yeah. Turkish-speaking listeners. And so this is a love song to a kamancha, and and as is the want of many of these artists, um, they use an inanimate object as the emblem, you know, the object of their love, um, whether it's a metaphor for religious love or romantic love, we don't necessarily know, but that's okay. Um, and this is in an arrangement by Alyssa Wright, a harpist here in New York, and it's being performed by me along with um, Jackie Carrod, harpist, and John Hadfield, hand percussionist. All right, let's hear it.
Well, this is amazing. As you mentioned a few minutes ago, Ozan Aksoy, when he was running the Middle East Music Ensemble at the Grad Center, and then after in Columbia University, this was one of the pieces in our repertoire. And oh, now it's so not. you were part of the repertoire of Ozan there. Absolutely, yeah. and this small is, world. <laughs> this is this is a uh, this is very nostalgic for me all of a sudden. And thank you so much for sharing your performance with us, Sato and. Um, so we would like to move to Gurung, and can you tell us a little bit about this song that we're going to play? Sure, and of course this song has a deep intersection with my family's past, because mm-hmm. the person who uh, set this song down in writing and who's become intimately connected with it is the Armenian composer Gomidas, Gomidas Vartabed. Vartabed is just a title, mm-hmm. an honorific for a celibate priest, he was born in Kutahya in 1869 with mm. the name Solomon Solomon Yan, and orphaned at an early age. Um, he had a beautiful singing voice. Both his parents had sung in the same congregation, St. Toros, that mm-hmm. my family attended in Kutahya. And uh, Gamidas was sent as a young boy to Etchmiadzin to study music and to you know, study the priesthood to, to become a priest. He was also sent to Berlin um, to obtain a, advanced musical training. He kind of functioned, for those who are not familiar with him, as a, a almost like Bela Bartok did for the Hungarians. He was a musicologist. Mm-hmm. He um, did a tremendous amount of field work. He went and he notated folk songs of all different people. And um, over the course of the thousands of songs that he wrote down, um, which were not only Armenian, but were also Turkish and Kurdish and, uh, you know, many other ethnicities. He preserved a lot of music that had been passed down through oral tradition and the people who would otherwise have been able to continue bringing this music into future generations were, they perished. And so in some sense, the music that he notated, just like, um, a lot of this art that we're talking about as well is Mm -hmm. the surviving legacy of these people. Um, Gomidas Gomidas did another really important thing, which is that he took Armenian liturgical music onto the concert stage, which was something considered very, very shocking Mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. You just absolutely did not take liturgical music out of the church, but he did it. And it was also another important, um, accomplishment. He he worked a lot in Europe. He he developed choirs. He also did it in the Ottoman um, Empire. He trained choirs and they mounted performances of this music. And he was actually one of the group of approximately 250 um, intellectuals and business leaders who were rounded up um, the evening of April 24th, 1915. Red Sunday. Yeah. And I mean, his story, I mean, of course, there's the whole um, relevance of Gomidas' story uh, for you know Armenians. Of course, he isn't in the in the end. He's pardoned from the deportation, but he you know, he goes mad. There's a whole story there. People can yeah. read about it in Rita Kuyumjan's biography. Yes, and also in Meline Karakashian's biography, and um, she's also a clinical psychologist mm-hmm. who's who's written a book. And I think a lot of us are starting to um, avoid saying that he went mad and rather saying that he was severely traumatized and right. had an entirely human response to the trauma. Sure, yeah. um, I, think, I think actually um, to say that he went mad is uh, diminishes his experience. 
Um, that's my personal opinion. And also the opinion, I think, of, of um, some of these psychologists who are now like working right. on his life story. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, it's a, it's a very like well-documented response to trauma. Yeah. What he went through sort it, of this period of silence and inability, lack of communication, his phase in Paris, a really fascinating story. That's um, yeah. only recently uh, been explored in depth. Yeah. And, and can I also say that um, it, as is also the case with other people who, um, have difficult responses to trauma. He, his early life was not so easy. I mean, orphaned at an early age, living in extreme poverty, sometimes hunger. I mean, during some periods of his youth, he was nurtured by extended family during other periods. He was not, um, resilience is sometimes linked Mm -hmm. to, you know, early life circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I think he had challenges all the way along. So it's not unexpected in a sense that, he would have had a particularly difficult um, response right. to what he had endured. And mm. for this reason, he's a, he's a symbol of so much of the trauma that Armenians as a whole ha- have endured and sort of how that's affected them as well. But on the other hand, he has this other story, which is the side of his, the other side of the story is the, his, his robust career. He's the ethnomusicological counterpart to Syed Nova, right? He's He's documenting all these songs, of course, they're Armenian songs, but mm-hmm. also in other languages as well. Right. Uh, the multilingual uh, communities uh, of Anatolia in the Ottoman Empire uh, and has left his imprint um, quite visibly on Armenian music. Today, many songs are attributed to Gomitas that weren't, uh, in fact, his songs, right? That's were, right. He was yeah, the he, one to write them down. He wrote them down, exactly. And not only did he write them down, but he wrote them down for classical instruments. I mean, right. so a song that women might have sung while they were washing now becomes a a polyphonic choral piece or a piece for voice and piano. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he, he helped uh, carry, carry this incredible legacy into the 20th century and now beyond. So I'd love to share with you um, the most emblematic of these pieces, which is the song of that a man sings to a crane that he sees, you know, flying from the direction of his homeland. And it's a, piece that's you know performed very very often um it sounds very different every time because it's notated in kind of an approximation but it's a piece that has just come to represent in an abstract and emotional way um this the sum of our experience Thank you. 
So we just heard this uh, recording from the CD Oror Lullaby, which is uh, Armenian music for flute and harp with uh, Sato Mugalian, who we have with us today, but also Alyssa Wright on the harp that you just heard. Uh, you can visit our website to find out how to obtain this CD. As you said, Grunk, or the Song of the Crane, it's a song that means so much to so many, but means different things to everyone. Um, and when you were talking about Gomitas, I've, I was kind of reflecting on how he's become uh, an, sort of an ascendant symbol uh, of multiculturalism in Turkey today. I know in the years where I was living in Turkey, recent years, there's sort of a, a revived interest in Gomidas um, by Armenians, of course, in Turkey, but also um, by uh, others who who are who sort of understand the importance of Gomidas's work and his legacy for you know thinking beyond you know. Uh, Armenian, Kurdish, Turkish music, but Anatolian music as such, because really the themes in his songs, uh, the themes in the songs he recorded are ones that resonate well beyond the Armenian community. Right. Well, I think also, I mean, particularly in this piece and in many others of his, there's a musically embodied sense of loss. I think, yes. you know, for me, that, and mm-hmm. I would imagine that that's a very resonant theme mm-hmm. um, among various groups of people because in the end, you know, you do have loss. I mean, whatever, whatever the causes of war or conflict, I mean, there are ways of life that no longer exist. We have nostalgia for them and Mm -hmm. nostalgia, not only in a sort of positive sentimental way, but in a painful way. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. Also the name of the song is crane, which is in Turkish, a turna. And um, as an image, as a symbol, and um, in religious context, just to um, connect to your um, point about loss, it's very common in the Alevi music too. The the word turna, and I and it it basically corresponds to another kind of loss among Alevi community, uh, originating from the entire experience in Karbala, another kind of um, exile, and the and as well as. Um, loss it's also a story of survival that people actually um build upon their hope and their uh survival and their dignity so in that sense um uh, listening to Grung also reminds me of an, a very common history of the people of Anatolia actually carried on their back and in their memory for a very for centuries yeah and i think we have to reiterate that this is a song that's uh you know, set to music by Gomidas before the genocide, but of course then has this meaning that it, it takes on afterwards and sort of, you know, we've, I've talked to Melissa Bilal, the ethnomusicologist about this, about how lullabies and different types of music um, sort of served a new, a new purpose uh, in post-genocide uh, community, um, sort of, uh, again, addressing uh, the pain and, and, and surviving and reviving. Um, well, I think um, my family's history, for example, my grandfather's side of the family had left the eastern regions of the Ottoman Empire, you know, 400 years, now 500 years ago. That was a kind of loss. And I think anytime you have mm-hmm. a minority group within a different majority culture, there's always going to be right. uh, different kinds of, of leave-taking and loss. And, and of course, there's always the romantic idea of loss too, um, which is, uh, you know, a trope in culture, um, leaving someone behind or, you know, not being able to um, 
marry the person you love. Right. Right. You know, so all of these are, are smaller kinds of losses, although they can feel monumental when they're happening to you. Right, right. I mean, there's so much we can say about how music and stories of love and longing connect the personal to the collective uh, in this context. But uh, let's move on. We've been talking a while. Let's move on to our, our, our last piece. Let's, let's finish off the recording with this live recording mm-hmm. uh, of a macam. Yes. So, um, you know, you were asking me, how, how do I interact with this music today? And I, I'd love to kind of end our musical selections with this piece, which is actually written or constructed by our percussionist, John Hadfield, um, around a macam, um, but with uh, improvisations there. And um, I think it's a happy way to end. So this is um, performed by me and John Hadfield on hand drums and Jackie Carrod on the harp. All right. Well, uh, on that note, we're going to leave our listeners uh, with a musical selection. We'll remind you to check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for a complete bibliography uh, and other links uh, of reference material to find out more about Sato's past and ongoing work. Uh, We invite you to check us out on Facebook as well. Sato, thanks so much for joining us today, for welcoming us into your home uh, and telling us all about your grandfather and about his art and your own art. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm thrilled to meet you both. It's been a really uh, special episode for us. Uh, So on that note, we bid you all farewell. invite you to join in next time. Here's that recording of uh, the Macam improvisation with Sato Mughalian and her friends John Hadfield and Jackie Carrad. Thanks for listening and take care.